Welcome to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast that takes you freewheeling down the great internet rabbit hole of trivia. Each week we pick a starting point and then who knows where all the twists, turns and tangents will take us. But we'll be sure to unearth a treasure trove of frivolous facts that will be as fascinating as they are, well, useless. When One Thing Leads to Another is produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. Our theme music is by Justin Mitchell. This is episode 20. Series 1 finale. And so here we are at our very last episode for Series 1. Absolutely, we will be back, fear not. worry not, dear friends. We'll be back for Series 2 very soon. So we thought now was as good a time as any to remind you to subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. So you'll be automatically notified when we start Series 2 and you won't miss an episode. Yeah, and we would love you forever if you would rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, yes, please. And over the last few months since we started this podcast, we've received lots of emails and messages from you lovely people. We have indeed. And some of you have just commented on the episodes that you liked in particular. And some of you have pointed out things we missed or got wrong in previous episodes. I can't believe we've got anything wrong, but uh, <laughs> I can. evidently we have, or so it seems at least. <laughs> so today we're going to go through some of those things. And remember, if you want to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Our email is... When one thing leads to another at gmail.com. Or you can follow and message us on Twitter. Our handle is... At when one thing. And also all of our details are on our website, which is when one thing leads to another.com. Okay, Bill, I believe you're going to kick off today's proceedings with our very first email. Our very first email, how exciting. Yeah, this comes from Tom, who uh, listens all the way from Luxembourg. Ooh, Luxembourg. An international listenership, it seems we have. Tom is a regular listener. Thanks very much, Tom, and thanks for writing in. Yeah, thanks, Tom. And Tom listened with a particular rigour to episode five which started with some interesting facts about sheds. And this was on the back of the fact that I just triumphantly and successfully built a shed, if you remember. You did. We were all pretty surprised. Yeah, and that shed, by the way, is still standing, even though we've had some high winds of late. And Tom was especially interested because in his days as a student, he wrote a lengthy essay on sheds. What? Uh, Yeah, as part of his furniture design course. Oh, wow. And so he is something of an authority in all shed-based things. That is fantastic. And you may recall that in episode five, I was telling you about famous authors, playwrights and poets, Mm. who used to write in their garden sheds. Yeah. And one of which was George Bernard Shaw. Yeah. You'll remember. And I said in that episode that Uh, Bernard Shaw had pimped his shed by having it built on a revolving base so he could follow the sun in his garden to maximise light and also to change his view. Um, However, Tom tells us that yes, Bernard Shaw did indeed have a shed that rotated, but he acquired it already capable of spinning. Oh, so he didn't pimp it. Yeah, he acquired it already with that facility. Mm. Um, And Tom adds that back in the early 20th century, people with tuberculosis would get isolated from the general public for fear of spreading disease Mm. and were confined to a shed. And as part of their treatment, they benefited from the healing rays of the sunshine. Oh, a bit of vitamin D sorts out tuberculosis, does it? Well, it, it was thought that it helped, at least at the mm. time, yeah. And so hence, sheds were made to rotate to maximise 
the patient's exposure to the sun. And George Bernard Shaw acquired one of these sheds. So thank you very much, Tom. That's, a, that's exactly the kind of fact-based gem we love on this podcast. Yeah, that's a great fact. Thanks, Tom. And seeing as we're on the subject of George Bernard Shaw, I'd like to add another bit of information, if I may. I am all ears. Well, you know, of course, he famously wrote Pygmalion. Yes, And that indeed. was then adapted into a stage show starring Julie Andrews and then a film starring Audrey Hepburn. Indeed. And it had its name changed from Pygmalion to My Fair Lady. Well, I have since learnt, thanks to a tweet from Mark Lamar, of all people, remember the former host of The Word? Oh, yeah. And never mind the Buzzcocks. Of course. He tweeted that the title of My Fair Lady is a pun. Did you know that? It's a pun? Yeah. It's a play on the way a Cockney flower girl, like the main protagonist, Eliza Doolittle, might pronounce Mayfair. My fair. My fair lady. My fair lady. I'm going to get the bus up to my fair. Yeah, that's why it's called My Fair Lady. Brilliant. If true. Well, I, I mean, I trust Mark Lamar. Mark Lamar's one of the most trustworthy people I've never met. Okay, I've got a message, another international one. This is from David in Germany. Ooh, okay. And he said, I binge listened, if such a thing exists, all the episodes in one road trip to Nuremberg and loved every minute of it. So that's nice. Well, thank you very much, David. That's nice of you to say so. Yeah. Now, he mentioned in particular episode six which was the one about funny place names and it was called penny come quick i remember it well and he said that the only thing he was disappointed about was that we missed the town in bavaria called wank (laughs) 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 so that was uh, thanks for that david i wonder if there are any postcards in bavaria uh with uh, welcome to wank that'd be wonderful wouldn't it yeah having a lovely time in wank (laughs) (laughs) wish you were here and are people from Wank called Wankers? No, anyway. Um, thanks, David. Thanks for listening. And thanks for your kind words. OK, and we also got an email from Suzanne, who uh, tells us that she particularly enjoyed episode seven, Oysters, as we named it, mm. especially the facts about Jonathan Swift. Oh, yeah. Who is most famously the author of Gulliver's Travels. And we found out that Jonathan Swift had written a pamphlet about flatulence, you may recall. I remember it well. Called The Benefits of Farting Explained. And we discovered that he had written it under a pseudonym, a very lengthy pseudonym. Yeah. That was Don Fartinando Puff Endorsed, Professor of Bombast in the University of Krakow and translated from Spanish into English at the request and the use of the Lady Dump Fart of her Fartshire by Obadiah Fizzle, groom of the school to the Princess of Arsimony in Sardinia. However, Suzanne, who must have very eagle ears, has pointed out that I actually mispronounced the final bit. (laughs) And so, yeah. And so it's not the groom of the school to the princess of Arsimony in Sardinia. I should have said the groom of the stool. Oh, nice. Uh, It's yet another play on... uh, Fart-based words. Exactly. So well spotted, Suzanne, there. Thank you very much for getting in touch. Thank you. Okay, in episode three, Vincent, Mm. I was going on about the fact that Van Gogh managed to sell just one painting in his lifetime. Yes. Um, And it was called The Red Vineyard. Mm. And I attempted some maths to work out how much it was worth in today's money. And we have had an email from Victoria from Birmingham 
Thanks, uh, Victoria. Hello, Victoria from Birmingham, who pointed out that my rather convoluted and evidently spurious calculations, which valued the painting at €13,500, was a long way off. Oh, was it? Yeah, Victoria drew my attention to the Wikipedia page, where it states, quote, the Red Vineyard was exhibited for the first time in 1890 in Brussels and sold to Belgian painter and collector Anna Bock for 400 francs, open brackets, equal to about 2,000 US dollars today. You were miles out. And rather embarrassingly, I was saying how, what a nice little earner it had been. But yeah. uh, there you go, I was wrong. Two grand is still two grand. I wouldn't turn it down. No. And um, by the way, you remember we were talking about another of Van Gogh's paintings, the portrait of Dr. Gachet being, being the world's most expensive painting at the time it was sold, which was in 1990 for 82.5 million US dollars. Yeah. And the painting has since disappeared because it was sold to a private buyer who remains a mystery. That's right. Well, Jenny who was a self-professed Van Gogh nut, also told us that there are actually two versions of the portrait, one of which can still be seen today as it hangs in the Museum d'Orsay in Paris. Ah, OK. Yeah. Oh, that means I've probably seen it then, because I've been in the uh, Impressionists bit there a couple of times. Well, it obviously hasn't made much of an impact on you, has it? <laughs> Did we go in there? Yeah. <laughs> or me. Anyway, Jenny also tipped us off about another podcast which attempts to track down the current owner of the missing version of the portrait. Oh, OK. Yeah, totally dedicated to that. How brilliant. And I've listened to it and it's absolutely fascinating. So I won't give any spoilers, but I recommend you listen to the podcast. It's called Finding Van Gogh and it's made by the Stadel Museum. Right. Which was the museum that originally acquired the painting before it was stolen by the bloody Nazis. Oh, yeah, OK. Who claimed it was degenerate, but was actually sold by Hermann Bloody Goering. Bloody Nazis. Oh, and can I just add, remember you were talking about the house that Van Gogh stayed in when he lived in Brixton? Oh, yeah. And you'd said that it was it was sold in, was it 2012? That's right, sold in 2012 for about... Half a million. But just over half a million quid, yeah. Yeah, I've looked it up on one of those How Much Is My Home Worth oh, yeah, okay. um, websites, and it's now worth 1.1 million. So there you go. There you go. Okay, in episode 17, The Grey Man. Okay. Right at the end, we were talking about the British TV satire show Spitting Image. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and the people who used to provide the voices for the characters. And we mentioned one such person was the actor Michael Fenton Stevens. Indeed. However, Phil from Folkestone, we like to call him Folkestone Phil. Nice one. Thanks for writing in, Folkestone Phil. Uh, yes, he wrote to tell us that Michael Fenton Stevens didn't do any impressions on the show, but sang when there was a musical number. And it's actually him who sings the chicken song. Hold a chicken in the air, stick a deck chair up your nose. Which we also mention in episode seven, because Benny Hill accused Spitting Image of plagiarising his song, ting a ling a -loo. Oh yes, I yeah. remember that, yeah. yeah. And you'll remember that Michael Fenton Stevens was one third of spoof Bee Gees group called the Heebie Jeebies. I do. With Angus Dayton and Philip Pope. Well, they had a song mimicking, rather cruelly if you ask me, the Bee Gees, 
called Meaningless Songs, open brackets, in very high voices, close brackets. Well, that song was written by one of the members, Philip Pope, and get this, Richard Curtis. Oh, Four Weddings from... and a Funeral and Blackadder and yeah, all of that. All of that stuff. Yeah. He co-wrote yes. that heebie-jeebies song. Yeah, yeah. And continuing on with Philip Pope, uh, who I met in a pub many years ago when I was a student. Very nice man. He also has written a number of theme tunes for TV, including... Go on. The theme to Through the Keyhole. <laughs> Try Lloyd Grossman. And it's over to you, David. Yeah, okay, don't. <laughs> we'll leave that. Yeah. Now, in episode 11, Ring My Bell, you may recall we discovered that the heavy metal band ACDC wanted the sound of a large bell ringing out at the beginning of their track, Hell's Bells. Yeah. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. um, and they tried to record the bells in the Carillon Tower in Loughborough. Yeah. However, they couldn't get a decent recording, so they commissioned the John Taylor Foundry in Loughborough to cast a bell, which they duly did, mm. and that is the sound you hear on the recording. Mm. Well... ACDC fan Nigel got in touch. Mm. Hi, Nigel. Thanks, thanks, Nigel. Thanks for getting in touch. Um, Nigel tells us that there is actually more to this story mm. and drew our attention to the brilliant website songfacts.com, mm. uh, which is a website I use quite often, actually. And on that very website, it says that ACDC's intention was to record the bell that the John Taylor Foundry had cast, but the bell hadn't been completed in time for the recording. So the company, that is the John Taylor Foundry, arranged for ACDC to record a similar bell at a nearby church. Oh. However, according to sound engineer Tony Platt, that didn't go well as there were birds living in the bell. So when they rang it, they also got the fluttering of wings, which they didn't want. And so they had to revert back to the unfinished bell uh, okay. at the foundry. Yeah. And so what they did was the bell was hung on a block and tackle and struck by the very man who built it, mm. uh, I read here. And it obviously didn't matter that it was unfinished. It was only unfinished because they were going to decorate it with a sort of ACDC logo and oh. things. Um, so that's why it was, wasn't was quite complete, but it was good enough to ring. Well, I say that when they then took the recording into the studio to mix it, yeah. they felt that the tone of the chime wasn't ominous enough. <laughs> So the producer slowed it down to half speed, so the one-ton bell would sound more like a sinister two-ton bell. Oh. What strikes me about that is just how much effort yeah. went into recording a flipping bell sound. Well, you've got to get it right. You've got to get it right. So you can't accuse ACDC of being lazy now, can you? Yeah. Um, unlike, say, Metallica who I read here, whose song For Whom the Bell Tolls also opens with the sound of a bell, except theirs came from a sound effects library. Well, that's just lazy. I've got a few more quick emails here of people who have listened and um, enjoyed the shows. Okay. I just thought I'd share them with you. Tony in Portsmouth wrote to tell us how shocked he was at all the information about Colonel Tom Parker in episode seven, Oysters. Oh yes, that? I do remember that. That was shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you haven't heard it, people, tune in. 
Do indeed. Some amazing facts in there. Absolutely. Um, Nairi in Australia wrote just to tell us that she loves to listen with a mug of washing up liquid. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that that's in reference to episode one. The very first episode. Yeah, is it safe to drink fairy liquid? That's right. And what course of action to take if you do? Thanks, Nairi. A listener in uh, Australia. That's fantastic. Yeah. And another Tony, this time Tony in London, he wants to know if you can whistle and hum at the same time. Oh, yeah. Tony is referring to my fabulous whistling from episode five. Yes. Sheds. Sheds. And if you want to know how we got from sheds to Bill whistling, have a listen. I'll do the French national anthem, shall I? Go on. Yes, you can indeed whistle and hum at the same time. Sort of like a discordant harmony, if that is possible. Well, I'll take that as a compliment. Now, this email I've uh, I've kept till last because it's a corker. Oh, right. Well, let's have it then. This was a message I received from Marianne, who is Flemish, but living in London. And this is with regards to our episode 15, Magnum. I remember it well. A family friend of Roger Moore had said that he'd essentially invented the Magnum. I do remember it, but the... Ice cream company, Walls, denied that that was true, right? Said it was a brilliant story, but it's not true. Yeah. Well, Marianne wrote to tell me that her uncle, Geert de Bevere, invented the Magnum ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding. Yeah, yeah. So there's a quote here from Geert. Um, he said, I knew 25 years ago that my Magnum would be a worldwide <laughs> success. And according to this article that she sent me, he still works for Unilever after 25 years. And he says, it's fantastic that the ice cream is now also a success in the US and Asia. It has not made me rich. The honour is more than enough for me, he said. Wow. Yeah. So one of our listeners' uncles invented the Magnum ice cream. Yeah, how incredible is that? That is random. I'll just give you a little bit more of the article, if that's OK. In 1987, it was still thought that it was impossible to cover an ice cream with real chocolate because that cover would fall off immediately. But bioengineer Geert <laughs> de Bevere didn't believe in that. And he said, I had to prove that it was possible, but it was no easy task. After all, I had to find a perfect balance in the chocolate. Enough cocoa butter to make the chocolate hard, but also enough butter fat to ensure that you don't break your teeth. Too much butter fat and the chocolate ran down your wrists. For two months, I lugged around chocolate samples and finally it worked. The chocolate continued to clothe around the ice cream and the magnum was born. I knew immediately that it was a hit. That's Git de Bevere, the inventor of the magnum, not Roger Moore. Thanks, Marianne, for that. Absolute gold. Magnum gold. Thank you so much for listening to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast produced, presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. This is the last episode in Series 1, but we will be back very soon, so don't forget to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
That way, you'll get notified when we return for Series 2 and you won't miss an episode. We'd also love to hear from you, especially if we've got any of our information wrong or you have some more fascinating facts about something we've talked about. Or you could suggest a subject for our starting point or let us know about any weird and wonderful or downright random bit of trivia. Our email address is when one thing leads to another at gmail.com or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at when one thing. A massive thanks to Justin Mitchell for letting us use his brilliant tune Homo Erectus as our theme song. It's available to buy from bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Acast for hosting us. Watch this space for series two of When One Thing Leads to Another. Please note that all facts have been found on the internet and therefore we cannot vouch for their veracity.